Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Joyce Cacho, an experienced executive and corporate director. Joyce has served as a board member for Lando Lakes, the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture, Sunrise Banks, and the World Benchmarking Alliance. She currently serves as the chair of Sistema Bio, a biogas company. In this podcast, we talk about Joyce's board journey, corporate purpose, sustainability, and ESG. We also address board diversity, opportunities in Africa, and the current geopolitical landscape, particularly US and China's decoupling or de-risking and its impact on supply chains. We finally address how board should approach the new wave of AI technologies. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod, or you can subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. As many of you know, I launched this podcast three years ago in May of 2020, and since then, it's been a self-funded personal passion project of mine. Well, I'm now very happy and thankful to announce in this 112th episode, the first official sponsor of this podcast, the American College of Governance Council. The ACGC is a professional association of lawyers and academics in the US and Canada, widely recognized for the expertise and achievements in the field of corporate governance. The ACGC was founded by some of the most prominent U.S. corporate governance lawyers, and today the organization includes over 150 practitioners and academics. The ACGC's mission is to promote a high level of professional standards among governance lawyers, along with a better understanding and broader adoption of best practices within business organizations. Through its many programs, the college explores the major governance issues facing business enterprises, including challenges to traditional models of governance, risk management, shareholder engagement, as well as an increasingly complex regulatory and enforcement environment. You should check out their website at amgovcollege.org. That is A-M-G-O-V-C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot org. Joyce, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You have been recommended by several former guests. So I'm very excited to talk to you about governance, about your different boards and your board journey. So thanks again for doing this. Oh, thank you, Evan. I'm actually honored to be on here. And I think Lisa Chalet and Suzanne and uh Another gentleman from the Latino board organization may have mentioned my my name to you. So I'm in good company. (laughs) All right. Well, it's great. I typically start with the origin story of my guests. And why don't you tell us where you're born, where you grew up, and we'll go from there to your current roles. I'll answer your question only by uh, pointing out that if you were a born American, you would ask, where are you from? And I could tell you which state I came from, but um, we share something that is that I'm originally from Belize in Central America, and I'm Garinagu in culture. And what does that mean? The Garinagu people are a mix of um, Africans, mostly West Africans, with Taino Indians who came together in St. Vincent. But when the British came to take over St. Vincent, they pushed us out on a raft and the currents of the sea 
brought those people to Central America. So you find the Garinagu along the Caribbean coast of Central America. I was born in Belize and my grandparents on my maternal side come from Honduras. So we're people of our own food culture, our own language culture, and that's my cultural origin. I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, in what is still one of the best public school systems, and I mean public in the U.S. sense, not in the British sense of public school, which means private in the U.K. Um, I grew up here in public school in a top county. I do recognize that it was a top county. So I have a number of classmates who have gone on to, you know, write movies, lead Yahoo, um, Yahoo Finance, you know, leading roles. But that's because we were all encouraged to pursue what we saw as our our goals in life, um, unabashedly. So tell us a little bit about your college or education and executive roles before jumping in in your board journey. And, you know, I know you you have a long executive career, but maybe just if you can do a five-minute summary of kind of what was your academic focus and what was your executive career before joining boards? My academic focus was always about resolving problems. So my undergraduate is major in economics, minor in computer science. And this minor that I took on was because I've always enjoyed math. I had the pleasure of doing computer science at my high school, basic language. And so I knew about programs and designing them to resolve a problem. And I then I, I did a master's in again, applied economics, about doing something, resolving problems at Virginia Tech. And then I moved on to do a doctorate at about investment decision-making and growth of an entirely new industry in Brazil. Um, so investment decision-making, corporate finance, and then policy and how that can drive that. Went on directly from there to lead strategic research with Rabobank International. I helped them hire. I was the first hire outside of the Netherlands. I helped them hire for the Americas. And then I myself built a, a department um, that covered five offices, Toronto and four in the U.S. Did that for quite a while. It was a crazy ride. Learned a lot. Transformed uh, the efficiency of the capital uh, use at the bank. And so we had business growth, developed an advisory product for them. And then I went in a, in, in a different direction um, and spent some time consulting in Africa, came back and then landed as this global chief sustainability officer for a Japanese um, owned company in the chemical manufacturing area in St. Louis, Missouri. Hmm. Solving problems is 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 the is the common thread, um, and and being focused on that uh, between my education and my executive roles. Yeah, that's really interesting, and of course, there is a lot of different things, and of course, going and consulting in Africa is is really interesting, and I want to hear more about that. But <clears throat> tell us about the your board journey. What what is your first board, and and how have you evolved from that to the current ones. And I've noticed that you, you've served on large private companies, 
on emerging private equity-backed companies, on banking institutions, and international organizations. So one thing I always talk about is the distinctions between serving on different types of boards. It's very different to serve on these boards. And so why don't we talk about your board journey and then some of the distinctions? My board journey begun with nonprofit uh, board work. And again, openness to being uh, part of growth uh, that I had had in like that I was then still at Novus uh, working as a as an executive. So the trick there was the opportunity to learn because it was over coffee. I was asked to step in uh, as the next chair of the NomGov committee. And I said, yes. And characteristic of Joyce, I said, yes, followed by what does that mean? And so I learned a lot instantly and took to that, to that opportunity. Um, and then I self-invested to join NACD, get their governance certificate um, at the time, their governance fellow certificate, which was a designation they offered at the, at the time. And what I will say about serving on different kinds of boards is that they all offered an opportunity to collaborate with board colleagues, very smart people learning from them with a clear focus on growth of the institution through innovation and being intentional about it. I think that across the serving across the spectrum of enterprises that I have served on is sort of like um, knowing the game of football having to agree on which football game you're talking about. Is it the football with the foot or football with the body? Both have risks, but you have to agree first on which game you're playing. So that's mm -hmm. what I've found to be, be common. Different um, is that when you're in corporate boards, large as well as private equity backed, really you focus on business growth and demonstrating that with the numbers. In the nonprofit, which includes my international board that I served on, the numbers are important from an integrity marker. The growth comes from program committee kinds of discussions. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things is because your background is so broad in terms of finance, manufacturing, agriculture, and ag tech, which is very specific, what are the takeaways uh, that you think directors can take in these um, spaces? And, and, you know, maybe let's go into the ag tech because I guess that's a very narrow section or narrow in terms of specific. Uh, and, and what is going on in ag tech these days that people don't know about? What they don't know about is um, the tremendous opportunity at the crossroads of finance and um, technology and market data to address challenges around environment and people. They are, ag tech um, is, is where fun stuff happens because one builds on the history of 
a need to serve people's nutrition needs, serve animals' nutrition needs, as well as building uh, water efficiency, building soil quality, and and finding mm-hmm. opportunities for waste to to be literally the built environment kind of building materials. So it's it's a fun it's a fun space. Narrow, I'm I'm not sure that narrow is how I would um describe it. I think specific and very energized is how I would describe it. All right. Another board that you served on is the Sunrise Banks, which is a banking institution. Uh, and it is a certified B Corp. And I, I wasn't familiar with it. And I, I took a look. And 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 I wanted to ask you the question about public benefit corporations, because this has become a very large debate in corporate governance. And what's the purpose of the corporation? And one solution is what people have called public benefit corporations, meaning that our focus is not going to be only in creating value for shareholders, but it's also for other stakeholders. And a public benefit corporation is a new type of entity that is incorporated with a different uh, charter that says that our mission is to improve XYZ and not only shareholders. So I'm, I'm curious about what is your experience serving on a board that was maybe a, a, a B-certified corporation, which by the way, we should say that a B-certified corporation is not a public benefit corporation. The difference is the, the structure in which you incorporate. So, but that's a, a legal distinction that I, I always think it's important to make, but I want to know your experience serving on a board of a B-certified corporation. So I will ask the question, um, are we still debating whether or not corporations are to have a purpose. I, I remember when that was coming up. And I think that while you are very right to point out the legal distinction of a public benefit corporation and a certified B Corp, there are tax laws about benefit corporations. Maryland was the first state in 2010 to enact um, this opportunity to, in your articles of incorporation, to go beyond delivering a return to shareholders. And you could, in your articles of incorporation, put other items that the operations of the company was going to make sure was taken care of. Okay? So I... I've been in this space long enough to recall when we were debating climate change. I think, and I, I, I know that we are no longer holding that debate. It is now a recognized risk. I think that we are at a point where debating whether or not a corporation should have a purpose, that, uh, that horse has, has left the barn. So, the, 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 the experience of serving on a certified B Corp was that you knew as a board director, you, the, the discussion at the board level was not to question if we were going to support employees when they all had to transition 
to work from home at the when they when on on March I think it was twelfth or thirteenth, twenty twenty, because that is part of being on the board of a benefit corporation. I knew that walking in, and that to me was a flag as uh, in the interview process that we were going to do great business. We were going to grow. We were not going to grow at the expense of people. We were not going to grow without recognizing impact on the environment. And so it was always with great anticipation that we looked forward to not only the numbers, the traditional annual report, how are we doing? How did we do this year? Did we hit our targets? It, we, we looked forward to when we got a copy of the, of the because they're a member of B-Lab, the, of, the, of the certified B-Lab um, report. So um, we are there. We are there where corporations are not going to only ride opposite to nonprofits at the other end being for-profit but in fact, work their way to ensure that their operations don't discount the future. Okay. I mean, that, that's interesting. And, and I think the debate is not whether the corporation should have a purpose or not, but what is the purpose, right? And, and so that is defined in different ways. And I think it's fascinating to see because some people say, well, why do we even need public benefit corporations is as a corporation, we can define the purpose. But, you know, another side that uh, you have a lot of experience is uh, sustainability, right? Which has now become ESG, right? Years ago, it wasn't framed as ESG. Years ago, it was corporate social responsibility. Years ago, it was uh, framed in uh, terms of environmental issues, maybe in social issues, but it has coalesced as this ESG, environmental, social, and governance, and uh, it's grown tremendously. But one of the more interesting developments is the pushback to ESG, and it's become very, very political. And I suppose now, if you're a CEO of a company, you've got to deal with this. If you're a CEO of a of an asset manager, I mean, now it's a major political issue where some states are divesting from large asset managers where political candidates for presidents are arguing about this woke capitalism, about this ESG, right? And it's gone beyond the traditional narrower corporate governance debate. It's now become a national debate. So tell us a little bit about how do you think about ESG and, and what do you think about this pushback, which is a very US-centric issue? Because if you go to Europe, this doesn't really happen. Uh, and and I think there are some interesting arguments of the pushback, right? Like the the, the, the greenwashing is real, right? There, the excesses of ESG is real. And it's an interesting pushback because people like to create this mantra of ESG, of sustainability. But what does it mean is, is a really core question. And, you know, I've had different episodes where I talk with David Larker and Brian Tyne from the Stanford Business School. And from an empirical perspective, how you define it is very important. So let me ask you just 
you know, what are your thoughts on ESG and what are your thoughts on, on, on the pushback and how do you think about this from the board's perspective? Thank you for the question. I think that if we focus on business, as ESG has evolved from CSR to sustainability to ESG to ESG slash sustainability, it is really an opportunity to do some hard work at the corporate level. You are tasked as a board with a series of duties. One of them is duty of oversight. One of them is duty of care. And the combination means that board governance is there to support growth of the corporation and that the corporation will be there long into the future. You cannot have E without S. And the critical part is the corporate governance, which is what the G stands for. Because if you do the hard work and you bake in to your policies about recruiting, about retention, about which systems you're going to um, procure and from who you're going to procure, and you put those policies together and you make sure that they respond to what your purpose is as a company then you will not jump to be distracted by those who have uh, different objectives than you in the boardroom. There, to your point about this being politicized, politics is part of the system in which corporations operate. I dare say the objectives in politics is very different than the objectives of an operating company. So if, if, if you want to be really clear, you have to be consistent from vision to mission, to corporate policy, to how you operate, operate your business, the decisions that you take, and keep circling that back. And that way, the debate can continue while you continue to manage risks in front of you in a very dynamic, fast-paced, changing world. I think that you asked me, you made a comment about in Europe. This is a very U.S. Mm -hmm. thing in Europe. Mm -hmm. Evan, you can speak to many, I am here to say to you that the notion that this is not about competition, international competition for financial capital, the sooner we understand that, the sooner that those companies that are hardwired to compliance only, 
If they don't say, if the SEC says I don't have to do it, I don't have to do it. And then, you know, this compliance only focus, because we are, the U.S. is a very, we are very litigious. So if you want to compete with companies around the world for financial capital, you won't get distracted. You will do the right thing for the company and do the hard work to align and embed ESG slash sustainability in everything from your hiring decisions to your procurement decisions, to what data you collect, how you use that data. Because that's the work of an operating company that plans to be here long into the future. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, uh, it's it's certainly uh, important to think about what is operationally what we are talking about. And, and I feel that there is a mixture of concepts in ESG that are very different to each other. And so I think the acronym has issues. And, and as none other than Larry Fink has said, uh, he's not talking about ESG anymore. And he's retiring that word because it's been weaponized. But let's talk about board diversity. And board diversity has become a very important thing in uh, corporate governance. And for the last few years, there's been a big push on board diversity. You know, I sit in California where there was a law promoting more gender diversity. And a couple of years later, it was minorities. And again, there's been a little bit of a rise on more diversity and there's a little bit of a pushback. So tell us about your perspective. How do you see board diversity, its evolution, the good and the bad, and, and where do you think we are in terms of board diversity? Underrepresented communities today in boardrooms, in executive ranks, <laughs> are the very demographic that does all the purchasing today and will do even more purchasing tomorrow. So whether or not you're B to C or B to E or B to B or wherever you are, you have to understand a critical thing that has changed. Coming from an underrepresented, several underrepresented communities, there was an implicit assumption that what was normal was what European-led corporations had in their ranks. And so everybody would aspire, everybody else would aspire to that normal. And for several reasons, including the pervasiveness of, of, of data via the internet, the, the cost of data has gone ways down. Some would say it's too cheap. You have dynamics of market segmentation opportunities that if you do not have them in your boardroom and in your executive ranks, you will be the next blockbuster. 
And that is to say, Blockbuster didn't see streaming coming. Blockbuster thought that its competition was home videos. And so to be explicit and intentional, a brown board diversity and bringing a different set of assumptions about what life looks like to be part of your company is not only an investment in being picked today, because the performance of companies, the data is out there, the performance of companies that have diverse boards, that have diverse executive leadership. And I can't help but point out that in the Fortune 500 right now, there is if only one Black woman CEO. The comp board composition as a risk, executive ranks as a risk, when the data is out there that says if you have a diverse board, if you have diverse executive ranks, your performance, your resilience is greatly improved. So the likelihood of you being a valued stock for institutional investors who are looking to close that gap between our gains and health, so we're living longer, and so we need returns that are less volatile and stronger, the likelihood of your company ringing that bell immediately de decreases when you shelve DEI as a priority. I think the way I put it is that coming out of finance, there's always business. There's business around folks who want to target and you want to advise them on who to target. There's business around those who are on the verge of becoming blockbuster and they just want something for their effort. And what is... Choose, choose which list you want to be on. Right, right. And, and I'm curious, since you've served on boards outside of the U.S., what is your view on efforts on board diversity in the U.S. compared to other countries in which you've seen and, and you think, you know, where where is the benchmark here? I think it's it's a lot is in flux. But in Europe, because of the directives, you don't have to guess if it's going to happen and by when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. They give the they issue the directives and um, their culture is, is, is less around challenging those directives. I'll be the first to say that sometimes their directives are quite broad and difficult to measure. However, they sharpen them over time. I think in the U.S., because we see what's right in front of us, that's our tendency to see what's right in front of us. We think that if it happens, it's okay. If it doesn't happen, that's for another day. Um, and the laissez-faire, that kind of laissez-faire approach to it and lack of intentionality um, is really where I, 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 again, flow into this competition for financial capital because the quality of a company 
in, who is operating, headquartered in an environment where directives have been issued, so you know what will happen by when, from an investor scanning the horizon landscape, you know what you're grabbing. You know why you're grabbing it. You, they, they've given you some clues to come and take a further look. In the U.S., the laissez-faire approach, it's a lot more work to understand, are they for real? Mm. And what does for real mean? Yeah, and I suppose an effort to be more intentional has come from different sources like in California or the Nasdaq diversity rule or uh, the proxy advisors and investors who have pushed for some level of diversity in boards. And if companies don't have that, at least on the public side, they're going to vote against the chair of the nomination governance committee. So there's been some intentionality from different sources, right? You spent time in Africa and I'm curious about trends coming in from there. I sense, and maybe I'm in California, so I'm very far away. Uh, there's less connection to Africa, but uh, a lot of people are excited about some of its trends. And I just want to hear from you. And obviously, Africa is a huge continent, but what what is happening down there in terms of what, what are you excited about in this continent? Uh, there's a lot of growth opportunities it seems very far away uh, from the U.S. at least. I, I know Europe has more connections to Africa and, and, and what they're doing. But maybe can you tell us what your feedback is from Africa and at least from your perspective, right? Because you may be interested in some areas and maybe very different to other people. So um, the, the, your, the excitement that you are feeling all the way in California um, is because it's you, there's good reason to be, lots of good reason to be excited about uh, the African continent. Um, and my perspective is that Africa is, is organized. So the Africa Free Trade Agreement was signed and is being put into practice where that means that Africa is ready to capture the value from being a contiguous landmass with among the largest populations in the world of under 30s, so very useful, very young, um, voracious mm -hmm. in their appetite to um, be innovative, as well as their purchasing. And on this point of innovation, technology has come along so that we can actually appreciate and Africans themselves can appreciate their long history of innovating um, with intention about generations long into the future. And so the proximity to Africa, let's tip our hat to technology again. I, on September 10th, 2011, I flew directly from John F. Kennedy Airport in New York to Johannesburg, South Africa, landing in Johannesburg moments after the first plane flew into uh, the World Trade Center. And so it's almost like 
that was my first time not going through Europe to go to Africa. And I'm going to tip my hat to anybody to take a flight direct to Africa, which you can do out of Dulles Airport, um, just outside of Washington, D.C. You can do it out of Atlanta, Georgia. You can do it out of, of, of JFK, New York. That's what I know about. I don't, you know, it may be possible from other major airports here in the U.S., but it's a, it's a real um, opportunity to meet Africa where it is. I had the honor of serving as chief judge for a new project called U.S. Companies in Africa and looking at their governance and how it matched up with the Africa Union's Africa 2063, which I might not be here, but isn't that far down the road? Mm. And it was it took a lot of work for that governing body for the continent of Africa to come up with a strategy that laid out what growth looked like in quantifiable terms. So number of local hires, number of Africans uh, in, in executive roles, the day of sending over expatriates ourselves, Europeans, because they were, we are better trained because we better understand the world has become very flat and it has become flat, not only because technocrats in Africa have been trained on the continent, in Europe, in the U.S., but because they, they remember what it's like to engage with their grandparents, with cousins, and respect the innovations that help keep them going. Mm. Nut- nutritionally, I mean... I'm very excited. You know, one one of the interesting developments in terms of international globalization is this fight or decoupling or de-risking with China. So we may be in a different moment in history where for the last 30 years, it was all about globalization and international trade. But now we're in a different time. And it's become this very strong, cold economic war between China and the US. And Africa sits in the middle. And and China seems to have taken a lot of initiative and funding in places like Africa or Latin America. and, and, And the US is kind of behind here. And so my question to you is, how do you think about this geopolitical landscape? And how do you think about this China-US decoupling or de-risking? And almost people now are talking about conflict in Taiwan, the same way that Ukraine is involved in Russia, which is very scary. And we may you know, go back in this environment where there are wars again. And, and so how do you think about this international geopolitical landscape as we get in, which I recognize is not easy question because it's such a fluid situation. But maybe you have experience uh, in Africa, which is uh, different its relationship to China than, than what the U.S. has. It's a perspective. I, this is not my day-to-day job, mm-hmm. but I hold the perspective that, one, war, uh, as I, I've heard the Ukraine war 
referred to, who would have anticipated that in 20, in this century, we would have mm. another war on land? No doubt we have characterized competition with using the word war, but the human sacrifice that land wars bring, not only while they're occurring, but long into the future with landmines, for example. Um, as I, I joined the group of people who said, no, I would never have thunk it, right? So with regard to further land wars, mm -hmm. It's not something that I even want to have a, what seems like a rational conversation about. With regard to war, mm -hmm. war for uh, power, economic power, um, and China, I think that we in the U.S. are very good at seeing what's directly in front of us and then what's really far away. And one of the things that has come out with the, with, with the three years of active viral pandemic was globalization as we had pursued it of these very long supply chains are inherently risky. It relies on the plane connecting to the ship, the truck connecting mm -hmm. to the plane, the, the weather, the weather permitting the plane to take off, the seas, not to talk of viruses not needing passports ever to travel. Okay? So we've had these three years. I think that the whole reimagining and different investment in supply chains does not preclude international connection. So that's still possible. Should we be continuing or reinvest in these long supply chains? I would say not. So nearshoring and onshoring is critical. The piece that I often find missing in this China discussion is lack of recognition of their tremendous investment in U.S. treasuries. And, and, and we are not at a point where we can take all of those marbles back and still have a financial system that is the envy of most in the world. So I would say I have out here that China back in August brought their slash their holdings of U.S. bonds to a 14 year low. I think like any investment and investing in the world, what are we doing about in diversifying bondholders? Mm. Right? Yeah. And one more thing as they often say, 
What are we doing if we're going to divest our bondholders? What are we doing about being an attractive destination for reasons other than what we used to manufacture? I have up here, a German state refuses to buy treasuries because the U.S. doesn't meet its ESG standards. <laughs> uh, well. Money counts. And, and whether or not the U.S. treasuries are going to be attractive to other than China might take more than nearshoring or reshoring supply chains. Well, I, I can I can only speculate that we are in a world of pain in terms of uh, readjusting. This is not going to be easy. We can't get out of this, you know, idea that global supply chains have been strongly intertwined with China, and decoupling or de-risking is not going to be easy. You know, going back is going to be very tough, and. I think people delude themselves to think that the economy is going to improve and and this could come at a shock. And this is a little bit the economy versus politics and there's very strong camps around this and and a lot of a lot of developments here. You know, there is a uh, not only CFIUS reviews in terms of investments into the US by uh, national security, but now outflows uh, that are going into China. So it, it's going to be really interesting. Let me finish by asking you, is there any other thing that we have not discussed in corporate governance that you think would be interesting for directors listening and important to highlight uh, here? We haven't touched on the magic AI. Mm. Um, and I call it magic because that's the perspective that most who haven't been computer programmers um, bring to those two letters, AI being artificial and intelligence. And um, the reason why I, I want to make sure that we just, we, we bring that into the corporate governance discussion is because we have to be very mindful that the corporate governance that we bring around AI not bring in biases as reflected in technology innovation in the wonderful California where you sit, mm -hmm. being dominated by people who don't look like me. And so their solutions, their programs will run. It's trained on data, data that they know. And so I issue a word of um, ask better questions about your procurement of AI and your use of AI. And when that comes into the boardroom and discussions around that, ask the question, vendor X, what are the databases that the AI was trained on? Because if the AI was trained on um databases that don't reflect the future, then you have just handed your executives an excuse for not achieving business goals as reflected in who gets to be in the room when business decisions are being made. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly AI is is a very big next frontier in governance. And as we speak, the investments here are multi-billion dollar investments and there is a frenzy, whereas the rest of the venture capital market is dormant or at least hit very hard. AI is is on steroids. And obviously, people are not thinking about the governance implications, or at least it, it's kind of at the curve and very hard to grasp. And this is why Elon Musk is so critical of open AI. And he says, ideally, this was supposed to be open in order not to be taken over by big tech. And it's now centrally closed and owned by Microsoft, which is exactly the opposite of what he wanted originally with open AI. Uh, so, you know, there there are real concerns and people are thinking about regulation and, and what does it mean in terms of regulatory capture? Is it going to be now in the hands of the big five? But look, we, we could be debating this for hours and spend another hour here. No, we won't. Um, we could discuss okay. it. But generative AI is is something that, that board directors need to be curious about so that they're not waiting to be told, but rather they can interrogate. I think that, you know, the, the fear for me has never been a position of strength. And one of the reasons why I have a PhD and have been engaged in finance and manufacturing and et cetera, and not in the classroom is because where change really happens is in day-to-day and the folks that are doing day-to-day on change are operating companies. So we have an opportunity here to go beyond what the regulators may say one day, because that's what corporates do. We go beyond compliance. If we want to be on the list of leaders, as opposed to the list of laggards. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean a lot to think about here and and I'm I'm looking to more discussions on on AI and it's something that I'm thinking about as well. So, but why don't we switch to the rapid fire questions? Tell me what are the one two three books that have greatly influenced your life? Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck and mm-hmm. the de- because it came out of the depression and um the ravishing of land. Um, there's a huge environmental aspect to uh, the Great Depression. And so um, I find that interesting. I think it came to mind mostly because I saw um, Jones, uh, James Earl Jones mm-hmm. play Lenny. Um, as you may well know, the plays will sharpen themselves, if you will, before they get to Broadway. And they were bringing the ensemble. They brought them to Washington, D.C. when James Earl Jones was playing the role of Lenny. And I was in you know, seats from the front row. And it was so impactful um, that the story stuck with me. The play stuck with me. And... Um, it, it fuels my understanding that today is complex, but it's not the first complex time um, <laughs> in the world. And um, 
And so, yeah, that's my answer. All right. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? My mentors are many. And I'm going to call out three. One, my mother. Mm -hmm. My mother who made sure all of us achieved her goal um, of tertiary education and that the sky was the limit for each of us. I find that very, and and just the way she did it um, while leaving time for herself. It was, it's very fascinating to look back on my dad, Um, my dad, because he, he lived a life of choice and instilled accountability in everybody that he met, including us. So I've been delivering budgets to get money for my college um, from, from some time ago. And lastly, I will call out, not that there aren't others, a man by the name of Robert Buckland. He went by the name of Bob, Bob Buckland. And I, it was a course in leadership to be his reportee at a time when um, I, I can only say it must have been his nature to encourage, to empower, and view that as his success. Um, so he was my boss at Rabobank International. And um, I hold on to many of the lessons um, from that experience and our continued relationship until he passed away uh, in 2019. Hmm. All right. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? There are several quotes. The one that I will share is um, the one that I often share with young people. There's no failure, only lessons. And that's to Hmm. say that trying is not, it's, is not for only when you know you can win. Only you know when you when you think you're mm-hmm. pretty sure you can succeed. Because in not succeeding, as long as you learn something, then you've added to your knowledge base and feel empowered to try again. Yeah, I love that. I think it's very positive and and a very good quote. All right, let's finalize with another question. What are the two things that you love which may be surprising to listeners? Two of them. Whitewater rafting. (laughs) I I enjoy it. I I love the rush. I I, let me give you a a story, and I, I think you may have heard of it or not, but I once went white river rafting in Zambezi river in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the only piece of advice they had is look, if you end up in still water, get out of there because you have crocodiles. (laughs) And so uh, I always remember that. And we, 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 the first uh, rapid, we kind of fall and rapidly we swam our way out of it. it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's tons of fun. I've been able to do it um, at uh, Musotunya in southern Zambia, in Costa Rica, 
in Colorado, in uh, Washington State. And um, I'm, I'm, trying to figure out the right time to go and do this in Maine. Okay. Um, so, cause I go up, I'm now on the East coast and I, I go up there uh, in the summers, but somehow the thought is like, is the water going to be warm <laughs> enough? But that's a whole other discussion. So I, I love okay. um, whitewater rafting. And the other thing is um, I love classical music mm. because I didn't choose to start Studying classical music as a child, it was something that my parents, actually, it was my grandfather who insisted that we do this for various reasons. And then given the choice, um, I asked to continue because I I love the interpretation part. And um, I've had the honor of exhibiting compositions of classical music by my music teacher when I was in high school. I, com- I competed uh, in performance at Peabody Conservatory. And um, the fun part is that my mom used to enjoy hearing me practice and hearing me play. Because Sorry, I, and what, I, what instrument is this? Piano. Piano, okay, wow. And, and so I'm, I'm very, I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy musical, through that, I enjoy musical humor. So mom would enjoy hearing me practice. And, um, but, you know, we don't always get along with mother. And so we, I might be feeling a little bit sideways about something she might have told me or something. And then I would have my practice time. And I knew she'd be in the kitchen. And I would get on the piano and sort of take a, um, a jazz approach to Furelis. <laughs> and, you know, which is a very melodic, very major chord, very sweet if you play it as designed. But it was my way of um, giving the unexpected passive-aggressive <laughs> response to whatever she told me. Okay, how do you like Furelise and jazz? <laughs> and um, of course, she couldn't tell me to get off the piano because that because it was annoying her because it was my practice time. So I do enjoy classical music um, a whole lot, and especially the piano. And I've had the pleasure of hearing um, Lang Lang play and a few others, um, especially when I lived in New York. All right. Well, Joyce, thank you so much for talking to me about your career, your experience, and corporate governance in general, ESG and all other stuff. It's great to meet you, and hopefully someday we'll meet in person. But this was, uh, this was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and I thank you very much. And let me close with offering you congratulations for being selected as one of NACD's honorees. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com. And please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance Newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.